Good morning. You're thinking I'm in the wrong house. And I'm actually in the right house this morning. Not because I live here, but um, because Brad and I are also on the Open Table conference this weekend, and he happens to be speaking right now. And so if I was on another Zoom call, that wasn't going to work very well for either of us. So um, I've, I've come over to my other church this morning um, to join you guys. Um, so we're going to do the roundtable now. And um, are you able to pull up the questions so that people can see them? Um, this is the part where we kind of prime the pump for what Steve is going to be sharing with us shortly. And um, the questions for this morning are, what does it mean to be wise? And what is the difference between God, uh, God wisdom and human wisdom? So I'm not actually going to answer those questions this morning, um, but I'm going to just talk for a minute so that you can kind of um, formulate your thoughts and responses to those questions. Our middle son um, turns 29 today. And um, so I was talking to him this morning and um, he added or he contributed a bit to my thoughts on wisdom. So um, this is what I had come up with. Um, wisdom isn't intelligence, nor is it uh, a given if you're smart. It's not just information. And it probably shouldn't sound like advice. Wisdom uh, seldom hides in opinions and doesn't require a lot of words. Wisdom is more about listening and choosing words carefully. Wisdom might come from your gut or your heart or your knower. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> um, it's not usually loud, but it can be. And it's often just above a whisper or a niggling or a vibe. You won't learn it in a classroom unless experience is your teacher. And wisdom is a gift you can cultivate and nurture. And wisdom is all about having a listening heart. So, the questions on the table are, what does it mean to be wise? And what is the difference between God wisdom and human wisdom? So we'll wrap this up now and we'll move to communion, right? Unless you want to pray for peace in Ukraine right now. As a half oh. Ukrainian person, I wonder if that might be a cool thing to do. I am probably more than half Ukrainian. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably about 95%. Wow, then you should definitely do So, that. yeah, okay. So, I sprung that on you, sorry. It's okay. Um, this is still very near to my dad. He's 88 years old. And 78 years ago, he was the little boy fleeing from the Ukraine and trying to find his way with his mom and his grandma and his siblings to Poland. The same track, three quarters of a century later, and we are back to the same spot. 
Lord, would you have mercy on us for just being hamsters on a wheel that just revisit and go over the same things over and over again. And you think that violence and power are the answer to what ails this world when clearly the answer is you. And so I, I ask Jesus and spirit and father that you would surround your children who are in fear, who are trembling, who don't know which way to go or have nowhere to go, but that you would show them how close you are to them. That the same sort of stories that my family um, heard and experienced coming out of the Ukraine, that, that you again would establish yourself as a God who sees us and sees them and loves them and cares for them and will protect them. And Lord, for those of us who are just carrying the grief of this in our hearts, I ask that you would lift the burdens from us, not so that we won't be in tune, but just so that we won't be overwhelmed. Help us to be mindful and to remember that you are the God of this universe and that you are the one who is watching over all of this. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks. Sorry about that. Yeah, Lord, Lord have mercy. This is, this is the prayer I just keep praying over and over. Lord have mercy, I don't know how else. Like the words are very hard to come by. Okay, we're going to take communion, and uh, in taking communion, we join together as one body here, but also we join with one body around the world, like everybody who is doing the same thing today um, in their own ways. We join with them because we are one family, we are one body, and, uh, and together we are connected with Christ in this moment of taking communion. So let's pray. Loving God, through your goodness, we have this bread and juice to offer which has come from the earth and human hands have made. May we know your presence in the sharing of it so that we might know your touch and presence in all things. We celebrate the life that Jesus has shared among his community through the centuries and shares with us here and now, made one in Christ and one with each other. We offer these gifts and with them ourselves a single living act of praise. So let's just eat and drink together. Yours is the peace, God. Yours is the mercy. Yours is the seed and yours is the growth. Yours is the water. Yours is the thirst. Yours is the wild and yours is the tame. You are within me, God, and within all creation, and you are beyond. Shape and fill me this day and all of creation with your grace. Amen. Um, I am going to pray for Steve and 
then I am going to read the, the passage we're playing. We're playing shuffle the people along the sofa, and I'm going to invite Steve to come. <laughs> like when the music stops, move along one couch. We've sorted out how to change the screens by just being in the same home. So God, I thank you for Steve. I thank you for the words that he's put together for this morning. And I pray, God, that you would, uh, you would encourage his heart um, you would encourage our hearts and uh, you would speak to us today. Again, Lord, we just ask for your mercy. Amen. All right, so uh, the gospel passage this morning is from Luke 7, um, and it starts in the middle of a story with, so off went John's messengers. <laughs> but it's like, they've been there, they've been doing something, and now off they go. <laughs> Jesus then began to talk to the crowds about John. Why did you go out into the desert, he asked. What were you looking for? A reed swaying in the breeze? Well, then what, will you, what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in silks and satins? See here, if you want to find people who wear fine clothes and live in luxury, you better look in royal palaces. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, indeed, and more than a prophet. This is the one whom, of, the, of whom the Bible says, look, I send my messenger before my face, he will get my path ready ahead of me. Let me tell you this, he went on. Nobody greater than John has ever been born of woman. The one who is least in God's kingdom is greater than he is. When all the people and the tax collectors heard that, they praised God for his faithfulness. They'd been baptized with John, John's baptism. But the Pharisees and the lawyers who had not been baptized by John rejected God's plan for them. What picture can I use, Jesus continued, for the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the square and calling this old riddle to each other. We piped for you and you didn't dance. We waited for you, we wailed for you and you didn't cry. When John the Baptist came, he didn't eat bread or drink wine and you said, he's got a demon. When the son of man came eating and drinking, you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And wisdom is justified by all her children. Have fun with that. <laughs> so off went John's messengers. What a great John's place messages. to start. Awesome. Okay. Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you that uh, don't mean I'm not, uh, don't know me, my name is Steve, Steve Mitchinson. And I realized that sort of over the time since we were really meeting in person, there's a lots of people who've joined our church that I haven't met in person. So really looking forward to, uh, to that. I'm a bit of an introvert by nature, so if um, you're in the same building and you don't know me, come and say hello, and uh, I'll try to do the same. Okay, Josh, if you can just pull up the, the title. There we go. So I've entitled this, um, this talk, Woman Born Son of Humanity. Um, it's uh, sort of a play around with what we've heard before of Jesus describing himself as the Son of Man. And, um, you know, hopefully it will be clearer what I meant when I got to the end of it. But the subtext was things don't always look like we expect. Now, we're going to be using words like man, woman, human, humanity. Um, and sometimes that gets a little confusing. So I just want to let you know where I'm coming from in this. Um, you know, that I don't believe that God is male uh, or female necessarily. Um, uh, maybe both or maybe neither. So um, you know, that's the background of, of where I'm coming from with this. So if you get, I'm kind of a 58 year old guy, so I'm quite likely to refer to God as he. 
Um, but that's not what I mean. So um, you can replace what it, it, whatever feels right to you. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at a couple of passages as part of a series running up to Easter, which is entitled Christ at the Center, with the subtext being every story tells his story. So this is a reference to how the whole arc of history and Old Testament scripture points towards the moment when Jesus would finally come in person and show what God is really like, revealing his true nature. So this is what my friend Brad Jerzek calls the Emmaus Road approach uh, to reading scripture, where following his death, the unrecognized risen Jesus meets two travelers on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the whole of scripture is the story of Jesus, pre-existent before the cosmos, the son of God in the second part of the Trinity. Yet he empties himself into his own creation, is born of a woman and steps into human history. And as Philippians 2 puts it, is fully human and fully divine. I could probably drop the mic at that point because I think this is, is more mystery and revelation than our human minds can really comprehend. And we've only just got started. It's interesting how things don't always become clearer through revelation. Sometimes it just raises more questions. So having Jesus at the center of who we are as a community sounds important and something we ought to be doing. What, however, does this mean? And what would it look like if we were doing it? Now, please don't hear any suggestion that we're not doing it. I'm simply asking what has become known as a rhetorical question as part of the exploration process. So things don't always look like we expect them to. For instance, what, is, what should church look like? Now that is a church, right? Um, here's a picture of a church I grew up in. It's a 12th century building with worship in a high Anglican tradition. And you might see beautiful, inspiring architecture or a cold, uncomfortable relic with hard pews and no bathrooms. Actually, on both accounts, you'd probably be right. <laughs> so it's a definitely go to the bathroom before you come to church, right? Okay, so moving on. Of the Anglican liturgy and worship style, you could see beautiful imagery designed to point us to God or evidence that the Anglican church never really reformed. They just got rid of the Pope and kept everything else. However, what I remember was a warm and loving community doing life together with Jesus at the center, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Something that I saw and experienced rather than had explained to me. Now, I think it's essential that we have a high view of who Jesus is, but that means we must have an encounter with the full breadth of who he is, both the humanity and the divinity of Christ, the eternal God-man. Now, this involves an encounter with the spiritual and the supernatural, as well as the very earthly issues of humanity and the questions of human existence. We are each created in the image of Jesus. And as C.S. Lewis suggests, the next person in front of us is the holiest thing we will see today. So have a look at the person in front of you. That's the holiest thing you're gonna see all day. I've got three to choose from here. I'm not sure who's, <laughs> not the, who's the holiest. Oh, I think it's probably my wife because <laughs> she sounds like the Holy Spirit, right? Um, but also remember that that person also shares the common issues of the human condition, as well as the divinity of our creator with us. 
So the underlying theme of this morning's journey is wisdom. And thank you for all those, those comments. I, um, I don't really have anything to say about it, but I'm grateful for your thoughts. <laughs> and so um, the underlying theme of the morning uh, together is wisdom and how things don't always look like the way we expect them to. Our own expectations and our cultural lenses might prevent us from seeing something right in front of it, even when it's fully revealed. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I don't feel qualified to speak about wisdom. And uh, your comments kind of confirm that in me. I was asked a few days when I was explaining that I was preaching on wisdom, whether I felt wise. I laughed because humility prevented me from saying yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have some wisdom if it's defined as knowledge that's gained by having many experiences in life. But the journey of life and any study that I've ever done shows me that I know and understand way less than I thought I did. Maybe more importantly, though, it's okay to embrace this, embrace this mystery. Now, doubt plays a, plays a part in this process, as Nathan shared with us a couple of weeks ago. If there's no doubt... We won't ask questions or search for answers and possibly, therefore, remain stuck in our own preconceptions. We will see if we haven't already discovered that there's a difference between God wisdom and human wisdom. And being, wis being wise is not defined by the number of certificates we have on our wall or the human accolades we receive. So let's look at that first passage uh, from this morning that Sarah uh, just read for us earlier. Yeah. So John the Baptist's messengers disappeared. Here we join the story when John, uh, I'm going to say Baptist because I'm English rather than baptizer. I can't, you know, baptizer doesn't sound quite right in the, with an English accent. Uh, so John the Baptist is in prison for speaking out against Herod. And it seems he has some doubts about whether Jesus was the Messiah he believed was to come. So he sends two of his disciples to find out. The question they were to ask was, are you the promised one? Or shall we keep looking for someone else? Mm -hmm. Jesus, as he so often doesn't, didn't give a yes or a no answer. Mm -hmm. He said, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Mm -hmm. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. Now, I suspect that the reason for John's doubt is that Jesus didn't look like he expected him to. He hadn't come in power and sovereignty to overthrow the Roman authorities, but was as quietly as he could manage, serving others and, and caring for the sick and suffering. So his answer to John says, the signs of the kingdom of God are here if you choose to see them. Something supernatural is happening. Now, what do you think? Jesus doesn't come in privilege and power. It was of these things that he emptied himself when he came uh, in his incarnation. He comes humbly as a human being, addressing some genuine issues of the human condition, namely the physical pain and suffering of those around him. And this points to the reason he had come from Isaiah 61, a passage he read in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4, as we heard from Eden a couple of weeks ago and again from Taryn last week. And then he claimed these verses for himself. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So 
back to the first verse. After John's messengers had left, Jesus addresses the crowd and asks them why they come to the wilderness and what did they expect to see. He affirms John as being a prophet in the Old Testament style and says he was the one foretold by Malachi. Jesus is not claiming a title, but gently showing how what he was doing was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to him. It was happening as it had always been planned to, but it had been misunderstood and therefore not recognized. God was revealing his true nature in the person of Jesus, but it wasn't what the people of Israel expected or necessarily hoped for. And I think that's probably still as true today as it was then. So Jesus affirms John as a prophet and says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Now, I find that an interesting statement. Because the one who was making it was God in human form, born of a woman. So I guess what he was saying was that up to this point, there was no human being greater than John. But as John himself had said, there is one greater than he that would follow. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. So the transition point of all history has been reached. And now, instead of speaking indirectly through others, Jesus is embodied and speaking directly to humanity as the ministry of John and the prophets come to an end. Following the theme of things not being recognized, Jesus likens the people's response to a child's game. It sounds a little bit like a game of charades, or if you've seen it, uh, something from, and if you haven't, I recommend that you do, uh, something from Jimmy Fallon's new show. It's called That's My Jam. <laughs> if you really want a good laugh, which we all need these days, check it out. Um, in this show, they have artists sing one song in the, spot, in the style of another. So they might be singing opera in the style of hip hop. Or, um, and they also have to sing one song to the tune of another. And this results in what can only be described as highly entertaining confusion. And I get a sense that's sort of what's going on, what Jesus is getting at. Um, it feels like he's saying, beware your expectations and what your senses tell you. Because John came fasting and he is a demon. I came enjoying a party and that doesn't work for you either. There's wisdom on display here, but you're missing the point. Okay, so to pick up this son of man thing. When Jesus referred to himself in that passage, he said, he uses the term son of man rather than son of God. And this is an interesting phrase and it bears a little examination. It seems to be Jesus' preferred description for himself. And it can mean several things. The more I read around, not surprisingly, the deeper the plot becomes. The Greek phrase, you know, I always hear um, my big fat Greek wedding when I say that in the Greek. Uh, I think Karina referred to that. Anyway, the Greek phrase, <laughs> the Greek phrase translated as son of man contains the word anthropos, which simply means human or human being. Anthropos is not gender specific, so it could equally be born of woman or son of humanity. And it's the root word 
of uh, anthropology, which is the study of humanity and civilization, as well as being an upmarket shop that sells nice furniture in the States. Um, it seems at a basic level that Jesus is claiming his humanity without denying his divinity. And it struck me that of all human beings ever born, Jesus is, is the only one who's technically not a son of a man, but was woman born. Just going to leave that thought with you. Jesus is the only one who's technically not a son of a man, um, but was born, but was woman born. Now, Jesus lived in a multilingual society in first century Palestine, so he would have been familiar with several of them. Um, it's doubtful that he was speaking Greek when he was talking to the crowd. Probably it was either Aramaic or Hebrew. And the phrase translated as son of man in Hebrew is Ben Adam. And in Aramaic, it's Barinosh, both of which, again, simply mean human and suggest that Jesus was claiming his humanity. Now, there's a slight twist here. And again, it picks up on the theme of Jesus pointing to himself in the Old Testament scriptures, and this time in Daniel chapter 7. This is part of Daniel's dream, who was in exile in Babylon. And it might help us why what Jesus was doing didn't quite fit with the expectations of what the coming Messiah should look like. And it says this. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, so here's the twist, and one that I'm grateful for those clever people um, who can look at these issues in the original language. I wish those were skills that I have. I probably don't have enough life left to learn Hebrew and Greek and all that. So anyway, I'm grateful to the people who can um, understand that. One suggestion um, is that if Jesus had been speaking Hebrew and used the phrase Ben Adam, he was merely saying that he was human. If he spoke in Aramaic and used the phrase Baranosh, he was doing the same. If, however, he'd been speaking in Hebrew and switched to the Aramaic phrase, the language of the original prophecy, the suggestion is that he was pointing to his divinity and it would have been something that his audience would have picked up on. Either way, it shows the intentionality in Jesus' revelation of himself and also the gentle way that he did it by pointing to the scriptural references that were being fulfilled by him. And as I said before, all this was happening as part of God's plan, which was unfolding. Unfortunately, uh, some of what was happening defied understanding at the time and continued to be misunderstood over the subsequent centuries. It seems that when we try to replace mystery with certainty, our biggest problems arise. So this brings us to our second passage, and you'll be pleased to know there were four passages, but I'm only doing two. I realize this, you know, at this point there's been a lot of talking, so so I take a breath and we'll just drive, uh, dive in um, uh, to the second passage. This brings us to our second passage from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, uh, where Paul writes to the church in Corinth answering some questions they'd sent to him. He was addressing a culturally diverse church and his answer was suggesting unity not uniformity within the body. 
He addresses leadership issues and faction within the church, and he compares human wisdom with God's wisdom. He speaks about how wise human thoughts and philosophy can appear, but can be completely wrong. In other words, things aren't always what they seem to be, or for fans of The Princess Bride. I don't think that means what you think it means. <laughs> always good for an eye roll in our household though. You keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means, <laughs> inconceivable. <laughs> Karen's rolling her eyes and hanging her head here and on my left you can't see it. <laughs> she says I hate that film. I hate it. So anyway, moving on. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm just going to read this for you and uh, this slide will come up. This is how it was for me too, dear family. When I came to you, I didn't come and proclaim God's mystery to you by means of a superior style of speaking or wisdom. No. I decided to know nothing in my dealings with you except Jesus, the Messiah, and especially his crucifixion. I came to you in weakness, in great fear and trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in transparent proof brought home powerfully by the Spirit, so that your faith might not be in human wisdom, but in God's power. We do, however, speak wisdom among the mature, but this isn't a wisdom of this present world or of the rulers of this present world, those same rulers who are being done away with. No, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery. This is the wisdom God prepared ahead of time before the world began for our glory. None of the rulers of this present age know about this wisdom. If they had, you see, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as the Bible says, human eyes have never seen, human ears have never heard, it's never entered human hearts, all that God now has prepared for those who truly love him. And that's what God has revealed to us through the spirit. The spirit, you see, searches everything. Yes, even the depths of God. Think of it this way. Who knows what's really going on inside a person except, except the spirit of the person which is inside them? Well, it's like that with God. No one knows what is going on inside God except God's spirit. And we haven't received the spirit of the world, but the spirit that comes from God, so that we can know the things that have been given to us by God. That then is what we speak. We don't use words. We've been taught by human wisdom, but words we've been taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual things to spiritual people. Paul was a bit of a dude, wasn't he? That's amazing when you read that. And... Um, couple of thousand years later and we're still trying to unpack what he meant what he said it's come through you know multiple different languages and cultures and well you know there's some there's some incredible wisdom in there if we choose to see it however you know i don't know about you guys but we're at the end of what two years of pandemic and alarm it feels like we've had more human wisdom handed to us in the last couple of years than we can handle or fully digest some of it's based on evidence, some apparently on rumour and popular opinion. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm exhausted with the whole thing. Um, two years in a hospital, you know, working through a pandemic. Uh, and that's just one part of what's going on here uh, in the world. So how are we supposed to interpret and apply all the information that comes our way, especially when it doesn't look like what we'd expected or hoped for? 
I heard this uh, fantastic line in a new drama uh, for fans of Downton Abbey. Uh, this is a new one by the same writer called The Gilded Age. And uh, one of the characters says when questioned, I'm not concerned with facts when they interfere with my beliefs. Ouch. In contrast, later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Something of a contrast. Paul says that when he was in Corinth, I didn't come and proclaim God's mystery to you by means of a superior style of speaking or wisdom. No, I decided to know nothing in my dealings with you except Jesus the Messiah, especially his crucifixion. An important part of Paul's message to the church in Corinth was it wasn't the style in which it was delivered or his skills as an orator that were important, but the message itself. The simple message was that Jesus was the Messiah and he died on a Roman cross. Period. The image and the scandal of which would have been all too real to his audience and in human terms would make very little sense. So he goes on to say, my speech and my proclamation were not in persuasive words of wisdom, uh, but in transparent proof brought home powerfully by the Spirit so that your faith might not be in human wisdom, but in God's power. Now, here's the thing. Um, going back to Paul, the dude, uh, who I'm an increasing fan of. Um, Paul grew up in Tarsus as a Roman citizen and would likely have had a classical education and been familiar with different forms of Greek philosophy and the skills of an orator, known as, which is uh, called rhetoric. So here we are, uh, back to our rhetorical question from earlier on. Now, rhetoric was the art of persuasive speaking, of theatrical delivery used in law and politics, and it would have been part of a classical Greek and Roman education. So it's likely that Paul is saying, I could have dressed up the message with human theatrics and made it more persuasive, but I didn't, because it's not human wisdom that reveals the mysteries of God. Now, that doesn't mean there's no wisdom here, just that it looks a bit different to what you're expecting and doesn't always appear very wise in the eyes of the world. The mystery and the wisdom that he's talking about were the coming of Jesus as a human, the son of man, or the son of humanity, or woman-born son of humanity, to show us what God is really like, the one who all scripture had been pointing to all the time. He goes on to say that wisdom was revealed to humanity, but it needed the eyes of the spirit to understand and receive it. So John the Baptist looks like an Old Testament prophet, kind of wild and woolly, but Jesus had to explain who he was. Jesus came as God, but as a servant, denying his privilege and power. But it required the eyes of the spirit to see and understand what was happening and who he was. Even John, his own cousin, had his doubts about him. So Paul makes this incredible statement. Think of it this way. Who knows what's really going on inside a person? I think we can probably agree with that one. Except the spirit of the person which is inside them. Well, it's like that with God. No one knows what's going on inside God except God's spirit. Now, 
I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by what it means to be human um, and how barely I understand myself, let alone anyone else. We sometimes have a sense of what's going on in others, especially those that we know well. We call it discernment, empathy, compassion. But if we really want to know what's going on in someone else, the clearest way to find out is to ask them. The human definitions of pain and suffering are what the person says they are. So if they don't tell us, we won't know. It needs explanation and revelation. So fortunately, Paul tells us, we haven't received the spirit of the world, but the spirit that comes from God. So we can know the things that have been given to us by God. So fortunately, there is a way for us to understand the things of God, but it requires not the spirit and wisdom of the world, but the voice of the spirit of God. Now, there may be nothing wrong with human wisdom, and I'm all in favor of learning. Um, but we must acknowledge to ourselves that human wisdom has its limitations. And at any given point on the journey, it's the best we know at that point. And, uh, you know, after 30 years in medicine, I find myself saying increasingly, I don't know. Now, that doesn't mean that I should, if it's something that I should know, then I should go away and find out. But often there just aren't answers to those questions. And we can't pretend that science has them because it doesn't. It's just the best that we know. The good news is that we are all spiritual people. And because that is how we've been created, so we all have the ability to see and understand the things of the spirit if we choose to do so. All right, so the next word says conclusion. So we're going to wrap this up now. There's no, no more passages to read. And I think that's probably quite enough for one morning. Um, so, you know, to pull this all together, it seems to me that to meet Jesus is to have an encounter with him. And to have Jesus at the center of our lives and our community requires that ongoing living encounter with the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus. Jesus was human enough that he was able to die. But in his full divinity, death couldn't hold him, so he was raised to life. I increasingly wonder if the most human thing we ever do is to die. It's life at its most fragile. Maybe that's why we fear it so much and can embrace it so little. The Gospels showed us or show us a very human Jesus who did divine things. He had friends and family and companions. He felt emotions, hunger and thirst, was born of a woman and died on a cross. He showed us the very best of what it means to be human by coming as the woman born son of humanity and invites us to embrace it and him. The medieval mystics had a concept of life being a union of relationship where an encounter with Jesus transformed their whole lives and purpose. Uh, there was a German dude called uh, Meister Eckhart in the 13th century. And he talked about having Jesus born in the ground of our souls. That's a really cool phrase having Jesus born in the ground of our souls. And this isn't something that we can make happen, but we can prepare that ground as best we can and make an invitation to Jesus. I wonder if the more we encounter Jesus and are inspired in wisdom and understanding through the spirit, the more we become like him. And then we can realize the full potential that lies within our humanity 
created in the image of God. We are, after all, the sons and daughters of the woman-born son of humanity. So to emulate him through an encounter with him provides a purpose for our lives worthy of the undertaking. And thankfully, it also provides us with a way of doing it. So I think in days gone by, um, I would have sung this to you, but um, uh, Zoom doesn't allow it. So I'm just going to um, read a song um, or read a couple of verses, because I think the best way to close a talk about an encounter with Jesus and having Jesus at the centre is for us together just to invite him to be there. Um, and as I read these lyrics, there was a couple of things that st stuck out to me. We were inviting Jesus to be the center, be the source, be the light, be my hope, be my song, to which I kind of heard Jesus saying, I am and I will be. But we get to choose whether we invite that into our lives. So um, maybe either, you know, if you want to read it for yourself, fine. If you want to close your eyes, and I'm just going to uh, read this as a prayer. Um, Jesus, be the center. Jesus, be the center. Be my source. Be my light. Jesus. Jesus, be the center. Be my hope. Be my song. Jesus. Be the fire in my heart. Be the wind in these sails. Be the reason that I live. Jesus. Jesus, be my vision. And we could substitute Jesus, be my wisdom. Be my path. Be my guide. Jesus. And there's something beautiful about a spirit-filled silence. I'm not sure that the silence on Zoom is all that edifying, but sometimes when we just stop talking and listen is where the voice of wisdom speaks. So I pray for us all today, my brothers and sisters on this journey, those that I've met and those that I've yet to meet, and those that have even yet to come, that we would truly be a community that we're with Jesus at the center. And what people see on the outside is what's coming from our hearts because it's inspired by an encounter with our living, risen, woman-born son of humanity. Amen.